Welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, Joseph Ashbucker, the Director General of the European Space Agency. He'll talk about how space is helping us tackle everything from climate change to more resilient economies and what's needed to build support to make big visions a reality. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lacina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. Sometimes we, especially in the space community, are considered a bit alien because we are very exotic what we do. But we have to make it understandable for everyone. And if I cannot inspire a little girl or a little boy, then I think I'm not doing a good job. And I think this is what we really need to do. Much of your daily life depends on something you don't think that much about, space data. In fact, without it, a lot of things would just stop cold. It'd be harder to fire up your favorite TV show, of course, but more importantly, satellite data helps farmers grow crops, preventing hunger and helping them be better stewards of the earth and its resources. Satellite data is critical in disaster management, general security, and it plays a key role in keeping economies from collapsing. But while so many innovations space makes possible are important to our everyday, they can still seem exotic, like science fiction. Or worse, they can just seem invisible. That invisibility is one of the core challenges faced by Joseph Ashbucker, the Director General of the European Space Agency. He needs to build support for innovations that are hard to understand sometimes and take decades to build, all with the support of politicians and leaders whose terms will end long before that project is completed. Of course, getting buy-in for big visions is a challenge that any leader making big change happen knows well. Joseph talked to me about the strategies he's learned while at the European Space Agency, or ESA, to build support, and how he talks about technical marvels in a clear way, without jargon, that sparks inspiration, trust, and excitement. He also shared more about the $350 billion and growing space economy and the initiatives that will foster new businesses that can help ensure space will continue to strengthen economies and protect the environment for years to come. He'll talk about all that, but first, he'll tell us a little bit more about satellite data. Everyone worries about uh, climate and climate change and all the impacts uh, which are uh, of course, we, we feel every single day. And uh, very few people know or realize how much uh, space contributes to understanding climate change. Uh, it is fair to say that uh, without satellites, it would be very difficult to understand how global climate change works and how it affects uh, us all on this planet. So um, just to give you maybe a few numbers, there is uh, um, uh, an organization called GCOS, uh, the Global Climate Observing System, and they define so-called essential climate variables. That these are parameters that are important to describe climate change. For example, sea surface temperature, sea level height, uh, CO2 concentration, uh, all, all these parameters that describe how the climate changes. About half of them, or more than half of them, you can only measure from space, from satellites, or best from space because you have a global information that really comes and provides this information. So yes, space can certainly contribute to understand our planet, our system, how it works from the atmosphere, the oceans, and the land, and how this system interacts. And in order to really understand our climate, of course, you need observations. But then, of course, the next question is, what do you do from the understanding? How do you go towards prediction, simulation, forecast of, situ of different situations? 
So a new generation of Meteosat satellite recently launched. Can you talk a little bit about why they're so innovative and why they're so important, especially for the climate? I mean, we just launched this new satellite called MTG, Meteosat yeah, yeah. third generation. So it, it is uh, continuing the measurements since 1978. So for many decades, but it's the third generation. That means a new type of satellite measuring parameters of our planet. So what it does, it's a geostationary satellite that stays over zero, zero. That means zero degrees north, zero degrees east. And from there, scans the Earth all the time. It takes about 10 minutes to scan the whole disk of our Earth from South Pole to North Pole and really collect this data. So it, it is doing this every 10 minutes. Of course, we can focus in to certain areas like Europe, uh, and then we have a higher repeat rate for disaster management, disaster monitoring, for example, if there's a flooding or similar things. So yes, this is a new satellite. Actually, it's quite powerful for two reasons. Uh, of course, it has new instruments, much more advanced uh, instrumentation, but also has a new concept. The previous satellites, they were spinning, and the sensor was touching the Earth about 5% of the time, while this one is stabilized and therefore can look at the Earth all the time. And this really allows us to, to scan at our, our planet uh, all the time. The ins instrumentation is very accurate. Uh, we measure different parameters of the atmosphere, which we need for weather forecast, uh, but also lightning, uh, how many uh, lightnings we have, because they are very important to understand the energy cycle, because there's discharge between the clouds, and, and all this is needed in order to really measure that. So yes, it's the new generation, and it's actually the first one of six satellites, which we're going to launch one after the other, which will really bring measurements for the next 20 years or so. It's really a new generation opening now a new avenue of measurements, very accurate ones for weather forecasting. But weather forecasting means also understanding our Earth system for climate predictions. And with that data in place, there's sort of knock-on effects then for industry, for farmers, right? Can you talk a little bit about what could change with sort of a better access and then, you know, handling of new data? It's very important for every parts of daily life, agriculture, yeah. fisheries, yeah. sheep routing, tourism. There are many segments that really depend on good weather forecasts. Uh, yeah. About one third of the European economy is depending on weather forecasts. And the impact economically is huge. The impact on, on the global economy is quite significant. Of course, we do this with our European satellite in cooperation with the United States, with India, also with China. So really, there's a network with Japan, a network of different uh, satellites uh, that measure these parameters. We exchange data with our partners partners, and therefore we use them for this understanding. But uh, yes, absolutely. The quality of the weather forecast has a huge impact on the economy. And therefore, yes, it's extremely relevant, not only for climate understanding, but also for our companies, uh, farmers, and basically every single citizen. Why do you think that connection isn't sort of more more known? Is it that space is, just seems invisible or so much of a thing of science fiction uh, in, in many people's lives? Why do you think that people aren't really thinking about that connection? It is true that space is a bit exotic uh, to many people, but very <laughs> yes. few people realize how, how much uh, they are using space data or space information every single day. I mentioned uh, metrology for weather forecast. Everyone wants uh, a good weather forecaster. That means good, reliable data, but also for other things for agriculture, for disaster management, for ship routing, for climate change studies, but also for navigation, for telecommunication. If people are watching TV, they don't realize that they will be also using satellites in order to get this TV channel from one continent to the other or from one place to the other. So yes, it's really used in everyday life. Sometimes I say, if we would switch off uh, satellites uh, just for one day, 
uh, you cannot imagine what would happen. I mean, the whole economy would collapse. The, the world wouldn't function. Many accidents would happen because navigation and telecommunication are necessary to make sure that you know where you are and uh, inform not only people, but also trains or airplanes or cars and many other things. So yes, uh, space is, is essential for daily life. But also, and this is something that becomes more and more important now, for security. Because space and security, of course, are necessary in order to really protect our people. And I don't need to explain the situation here in Europe, uh, in front of our door, where we have a, a very ruthless war going on. And yes, space is absolutely important to inform people, to protect people, and to ensure security of people in the wider sense. ESA has a special initiative with Euroconsult, and it has to do with space and space economy and startups. Can you tell us just a, a little bit about why that is important and sort of how that can also maybe play a good role in the climate crisis? No, it's a very uh, good uh, example. You mentioned this uh, agreement we have with Euroconsult. They are a consultancy company to really look at economic aspects of space. And uh, let me just give you a few numbers. Today, the space economy is roughly worth uh, 350 billion US dollars globally, yeah. which is quite significant. Uh, but there's more and more private money flowing into space economy. And this figure is increasing. For example, private investors or private people uh, investing today some 13 billion uh, US dollars or euros uh, in, in the space economy. Uh, the share in Europe is much smaller still uh, than in the United States. But uh, there is more and more private money flowing in. So this commercialization of space that it's not only public entities like NASA or ESA or other national government space agencies that are working in space. No, it's also the private sector that comes in more and more. For example, in Europe, we had an increase of 95% of private funds into the space economy in 2021 compared to 2020. So it's really doubling or it's really increasing very rapidly. And that's something I really would like to foster, to increase uh, as uh, the Director General of the European Space Agency, to make sure that new businesses are being created and people basically can make use of this space infrastructure, which is enormous and which is very powerful and very useful for people. So yes, sir, I have a very strong drive of commercializing or in the commercialization of space. And that's something extremely important. And this contract you mentioned is one element in this segment, but also to team up with venture capital companies and private investors is something I'm really focusing on. What other capabilities need to be built for that? I mean, you were talking about like sort of a one of these partnerships, but what else? What needs to, to happen to make sure that we can scale that? First of all, there's a, a large amount of investment coming from the public sector. I mentioned NASA, I mentioned ESA, but also other space agencies. And that's huge. And as you said, not everyone knows how much can be done. But also, much of this information is needed to create new businesses, companies, new startups, new information flows that are, that are creating, new data that are being sent out. And there's a huge new ecosystem that is being developing and establishing through the space data that are being provided. Let me take the example of Earth observation. In Earth observation in Europe, we disseminate 350 terabytes of data every single day to the people worldwide of every information that we get from our Earth observation satellites. That means our satellites monitoring our planet for free to everyone. So everyone who wants to use this data can get them for free of any place in the world. And that's quite unique. As I say, we disseminate all this data, but this also creates new opportunities. Uh, of course, uh, you really add value if you then combine these space observations with forecast models in order to really predict uh, situations and estimate what is the impact of a certain disaster or a certain agricultural production on a certain area on the people. And this is, of course, very important, very important aspect of what we do. We call it 
digital twins of our planet and to create these digital twins that allow you to simulate our planet is the future. What could hold any of this back, any of this growth, any of this advancement? Of course, uh, it is uh, a new discipline and in order to for this discipline to, to really penetrate into the economy, it takes time because people don't know about the capabilities of space. Uh, many people are not exposed. Many people think it's just too complicated and therefore it needs top experts to, to work with it. It's getting simpler and simpler and these data are getting more and more user friendly. So I think it's a matter of time until the use of these data is much more widespread. But yes, you're absolutely right. Today there's still not the full potential utilized because much more can be done if we really bring this to the economy, to small and medium-sized enterprises, to private people who are using it for all kinds of applications. Are there any other applications maybe we haven't mentioned that you're just really, really excited about the potential that you know we just haven't covered yet? Of course, when you talk space, you talk astronauts, you talk exploring the moon, the space station or Mars. Uh, yes. And that's, of course, something that is also exciting. The inspiration that is created there to really explore new domain dimensions. Uh, the space station is now running for more than 20 years. Very successfully, all the experiments that are done, all the research that is done is really penetrating uh, into daily life. And there's a lot of spin-offs that really are used uh, by people every single day. But there are also, also many other things. I mean, talk of the moon as the next uh, economic zone. What uh, sometimes is underestimated, that the moon is like a new continent, uh, like uh, yeah. we discovered a new continent 500 years ago, which now turns out to be the United States of America. And certainly this exploration of a new continent is also something that space, of course, enables. Because we do go to the moon, we will uh, set base there. There are minerals, there's water, there's ice. We can build uh, infrastructure with 3D printers. It's all a bit futuristic, but this is things that is coming up now and certainly very exciting and something that we are working on quite intensely. We are facing a polycrisis. And what I'm wondering, is there one particular aspect, though, that you think people can't lose sight of within this polycrisis? What's, what, what, what comes to mind? It's almost frightening how many crises we are seeing right now, from uh, COVID to the war, to the inflation, and, uh, and several other crises. And yes, space, of course, is in the midst of it. But I just had a, a conference uh, with uh, the ministers of the European Space Agency's member states at ministerial level. Uh, and uh, what, I, what I was explaining was why space is so important during time of crisis. Because in a crisis, what you need to do, first of all, you need to have access to information that is crucial, that is critical. I mentioned security before. And security, but also independent access to information is, is crucial for that. So therefore, because we're in a crisis, we need to invest in space to get out of the crisis much stronger for reasons of daily information which we need, but also because we need to invest in the future. And investing in the future helps you getting out of a crisis stronger. And space is one of these domains which really in, uh, represents the future and helps you get out of the crisis stronger. Absolutely. Uh, a theme of forum basically since the pandemic has just been this theme of resilience. How can we build resilient governments, resilient organizations? Um, in your mind, what does resilient leadership mean? What are the hallmarks of it? I mean, the hallmarks of resilience really is to estimate what's coming in terms of different foresight scenarios and really prepare for them. Of course, nobody was predicting a war. Nobody was predicting the COVID crisis. But there are people, and I have some of them in my organization, who are looking into foresight scenarios. And you really have to look at them. And they may sound extreme today. They may sound not plausible today. But you have to assess 
what would you do if such a crisis would come? And then, of course, prepare yourself through infrastructure, through telecommunications networks, through navigation networks, through resilient systems that are resilient in the sense of having backup solutions in case one element is damaged or is uh, falling out. And how can another one replace? So yes, this resilient infrastructure is more and more needed. And we see it every single day now with the war in the Ukraine where we need resilient systems and space is one way of providing this resilience. So especially in communication, but also observing what's going on down on the, in the war zone and providing images. Uh, and this is, uh, has been helping enormously our colleagues and friends in Ukraine to really sustain this onslaught of uh, war which, which they are facing. And uh, information, resilience in terms of infrastructure is, is crucial to help them uh, gaining uh, the upper hand. Of course, space, there's the exploration element, there's the innovation element. A lot of it is a, a, a bet, a leap of faith sometimes, you know, and sometimes you will face barriers or, or you'll hit a wall and in the moment, sometimes may not know how you're going to get past it. Have you faced a moment like that? And if so, how did you get through it? I mean, we are facing this, I would say, almost every single day. If we yes. have major decisions or major programs which we prepare, the it is easy to excite people with space because, you know, it's so inspiring. But the difficulty is that the result will not come before, say, 10 years or so, because you're building up infrastructure. Uh, if you build a, a big satellite or a big rocket or a space station, or if you go to the moon, that takes 10 years or, or even longer. So to really have a decision maker whose term, whose uh, mandate is only four years maybe, convinced that uh, you need to invest in this future engagement because it's good for the economy, it's good for the people, but maybe after uh, his term ends, uh, maybe for his success, or maybe even the one afterwards, it's very difficult to explain. And that's something I struggle sometimes to really make people aware, yes, this is needed, this is so important, but unfortunately, this hardware which we are developing can only be delivered in 10 years from now, which means two legislative periods after the, the decision maker is making the decision. And that's a challenge. I have to say, thankfully, sometimes people are visionary and understand the importance and therefore make decisions. But yes, this is certainly a challenge. What have you noticed is maybe helpful sometimes when you're trying to break this down and explain things to people? I remember when I was talking to Al Gore, actually, over the podcast, he had said that he learned that he had to change the way that he talked about the climate because when he first started to talk about it, he had a lot of detail and a lot of research. And sometimes he um, would maybe overload people with information and things that he thought were interesting. Maybe you know they, they weren't there yet, right? And so it helped him steer how he kind of leads and how he talks about the climate today. And so given, given that sort of spirit, are there things that you've discovered as you've been in this process? Well, when I do that, this, this gets mm. me a little bit of growth, a little bit of momentum. Anything that you've discovered like that? Mm. Absolutely. I mean, you yeah. just said it, actually. Yeah. I have a science background. And uh, of course, as a scientist, you are... Yes. Very detailed, very systematic. Uh, you think in equations, you yeah. think in uh, concepts, uh, and your mind is working very differently because the problem you have to solve is a mathematical physics problem. But uh, of course, if I talk to decision makers, politicians, it doesn't work. So I have to completely change my language. And sometimes I, I think I have to really talk to you know somebody who is not at all having an academic education and I have to explain it to that person. And if I'm not capable of doing that, then I fail. Sometimes I put my grandmother or, or my parents or somebody in front of me visually. And if I'm not capable of, of explaining to them what I'm doing, why it is so important, 
and why they should say yes at the end of the conversation that this is something that needs to be supported, then I think I fail. And this is really complete rethinking. I can certainly say that I've failed miserably myself <laughs> at the beginning, trying to overcomplicate things and not being clear to what is really at stake. And I think to simplify this message, but still keeping the content right and knowing what, what is needed, I think that's a challenge, which, which I think is a big one. And I'm certainly doing this a very important one. We, we mentioned earlier the, the many crises that we're all facing you know, simultaneously. In your mind, what is the role of public leadership when we have all these crises in, in, a, in an era like ours? What is the role of public leadership? Well, the role of public leadership is, first of all, to have a clear vision of what needs to be done. Of course, you need to elaborate this vision, but to have a clear vision, express it very clearly to the people, not to myself, but to the people, and hopefully make them follow your vision and therefore understanding why this is so important. So communication is key. Communication at all levels. Communication, of course, to the experts, so that uh, recognition and respect for the idea is being supported, but also communication to the general public. And that's extremely important because the decisions of politicians is based on what they hear from the general public. And I think this is something that we need to work on. Sometimes we, especially in the space community, are considered a bit alien because we are very exotic what we do. It's very fascinating. It's very complicated. We have to make it understandable for everyone. And if I cannot inspire a little girl or a little boy, then I think I'm not doing a good job. And I think this is what uh, we really need to do. I guess on that same note, when you think about excellence in, in public leadership, are there sort of signs or tells when you're like, you know, okay, that that's on the right track or people who do X or Y, they usually are, you know, going to be successful sort of getting a consensus and, and, and wide support. What are those? What does excellence in public leadership look like? Excellence means that, of course, you have the good vision, but also you live what you talk and yeah. you are a role model for everyone inside and outside the organization. Yeah. And I think this is key. People need to trust you. People need to believe in what you say is actually what you mean. And I think this is all about clear leadership. Of course, having a clear vision, a clear direction you want to go, but also acting and behaving in exactly that way. And I think this is what makes people trust you. But also you have to be, you know, people need to like it. People need to like the way you communicate. And they need to get on board on your message. Of course, there's a huge process that helps you doing that. But yes, that's, that's exactly what is needed to basically live what you say. You would say walk, walk the talk. Exactly. Has <laughs> there been an experience in your background that has shaped the way that you you lead? Something that happened ever since then? You're like you really learned from that and, and applied that lesson and, and put it into practice. I've uh, learned many things along my way, and I still keep learning. But let me mention one example in terms of content. One of my previous steps in my career, I became director of Earth observation in the European Space Agency, so the position one level be below where I am now. And when I became director, I looked at the directorate, which is still almost a thousand people and a sizable budget, but I looked at it and I, I assessed the weaknesses and the strengths. The, the strength was it's a very good one, very good output, but the weakness was it was a bit, I would say, old-fashioned and was not was not recognizing the, the future challenges and what's happening in the world. This was about 10 years, 10 years ago. So what I did of course, when I talk to my people, I say, look, there's this new world happening, commercialization, X and Spire and Planet and all these companies are doing things completely differently. We have to adapt to this. We have to embrace and we have to learn from this. And of course, my 
peers uh, who have worked in this uh, domain since decades that, no, no, this is not for us. This is something else. And we don't believe that this will ever uh, affect us. So what I did is I took them to Silicon Valley. We spent 10 days going from one company to the other. And we really went there and learned for ourselves how, how, how it works. And I can tell you the most critical managers, senior managers, top experts in space who have been saying this is all no good, have become the biggest believers because they realized what's happening by seeing it and by really talking to these people. And I can tell you walking in a factory of uh, rockets in SpaceX or seeing a planet, another company was extremely successful today, but I'm talking 10 years ago, and seeing how they work and how they build up their products, their philosophy is quite eye-opening. And this was eye-opening for me, for myself as well, but also for my colleagues. I think this is something extremely important, bring people on board and make them part of it. And therefore they buy in and therefore, therefore they, they lead in what has to be done. Is there a way that you feel like you have maybe changed as a leader since joining the European Space Agency? Um, certainly. Um, I was certainly uh, an expert in using satellite data and working with them and more thinking in terms of physics and equations. And I'm thinking very differently now because now more and more I'm talking to politicians, to the general public, to people that, you know, who make decisions, big decisions, but are not from the space domain. So, yes, changing the way how you communicate is something that really have, I would have, have changed significantly. But also, of course, network with the people, making sure that your goals, which you are, which you are promoting, which you are believing in, are being accepted. And therefore, yes, a combination of communication, networking, formulating uh, big programs and making sure that what you do is actually very sensible and helping people, helping everyone. Is there a book you recommend? A book? There are several books I'm reading. There's one which is actually, which is more in the space domain. It's called Escaping Gravity. Lori Garver from NASA. She used to work for NASA, number two in, in NASA. But she has really described how NASA changed drastically in adopting a much more commercial policy. It's called the CCB, the, the Commercial Crew Program and the Commercial Cargo Program. It's a big change, which actually resulted in companies like Jeff Bezos's or Elon Musk's company in space. And they really worked with them in a very different way. So that's something that interests me a lot because it's how you change a big organization and how you need to adapt to a new reality. And that's also very useful for me as well. But there are also other books. There's another one which I just started. It's called Silence in the Time of Noise. Also, the title, I think, uh, says it, by Erling Kage, who is an explorer. And he went on foot to the North Pole, to the South Pole, and to the Mount Everest. So the, the highest poles of this planet, all, by, all on his own as an explorer. And I, I had the pleasure of getting to know him. And I have to say, it's extremely fascinating to talk to people like this who are pushing the boundary all the time and an explorer is doing exactly that and the book he he was writing about silence of course says how he walks to the north pole and what he feels about it and describes his exploration fascinating i can only highly recommend um, what would somebody take from that book if they were to read it how would they change what do they change? That all the noise we make is just noise. And sometimes you have to step back and really reflect and think much deeper. I think that's what people should do much more. That was Joseph Ashbucker. Thanks to Joseph and thanks so much to you for listening. A transcript of this episode and my colleagues' episodes, Radio Davos and the Book Club podcast, is available at wef.ch slash podcasts. This episode of Meet the Leader was presented and produced by me, with Juan Toran as studio engineer, Jarrett Johansson as editor, and Gareth Nolan driving studio production. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina with the World Economic Forum. Have a great day. <laughs>